0: we're celebrating a monumental milestone with a special episode of the vulgar geniuses podcast
1: for our 100th show we sit down with new york times best-selling novelist celeste Ng, as we talk about her recent book our missing hearts bird gardner is a 12 year old boy who lives alone with his father after having their lives suddenly interrupted years prior when his mother margaret a chinese american poet is snatched from their home
0: Book banning and kidnapping children from the homes of descendants is the norm as America has shifted into a time of dystopian restlessness to maintain American culture after economic peril and violence befall the nation. We speak with Ng about the similarities in her novel to the outside world, her hobby that helps her to unwind, and an item that she was able to take from the set of Little Fires Everywhere.
2: Stay with us on the 100th episode of the Vogue
0: Geniuses podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzy'sbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code Genius to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. We're your hosts. My name is Denny. And I am Veronica. And today we are joined by the best guest, I think, that we yes. have had this year, like you know, not shooting down anybody else, but this is the (laughs) ultimate experience for us. This is our 100th episode. This will be our 100th episode. And we are so blessed to be able to speak to the one and the only Celeste Ng. So for those who might have been hiding under a rock, here's some information on Celeste. Celeste Mm -hmm. Ng is the number one New York Times bestselling author of Everything I Never Told You and Little Fires Everywhere. Her third novel, Our Missing Hearts, will be published in October of 2022. Ng is the recipient of fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Guggenheim Foundation, and her work has been published in over 30 languages. Welcome to the show, Celeste. How are you doing
2: tonight? I am good. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Oh, thank you so much for coming on. Yes, I think we we do a special thing with our authors, which we'll do in a minute. But before mm-hmm. we do that, we just want to let you know why this episode is so special to mm-hmm. us. Because Little Fires Everywhere was the very first book that we read for our book club, and it happened right oh the, start of the pandemic. Like yes. we didn't know that the pandemic was coming, right? And I texted Denny and I told her, I was like, hey, there's this television show that's coming on. Do you want to read this book with me? And she was like, sure. And then we decided, why don't we turn this into a book club? And then why don't we turn this into a podcast? So within a month, by by the end of April, we had put out our first episode and it was your book. So to have this moment is full circle like this is the definition of that circle so thank you so much for oh coming. my god
2: I am so touched and I'm so thrilled to be here talking to you oh man and yeah. your book
0: is simply amazing uh we'll get
1: into that shortly but I'm gonna pass it off to Denny so you know we do a, like like I like we said if you don't know Celeste you've been living in Mars <laughs> for all of these years. um we, we're gonna get a we're gonna do a little get to know you um you know, and we're going to I'm going to try not to be like super excited because your first book, um, Everything I Never Told You, was the book that made me read again because I was in a like a slump, and I wasn't reading. And that's why I agreed to do Little Fires Everywhere with Veronica because I'm like, yeah, I know her. I'm going to read her books.
2: That is like the nicest thing that a writer could hear, honestly, that like your book only got read, but it got somebody excited about reading again that's amazing
1: yes Mm. you know I'm not just telling you this because you're right in front of me I've been telling this to Veronica ever since we started like what we're doing right now Mm -hmm. but I digress um so a little getting to know you questions um what is a mini thing like your little tiny things that you do that you've been dying to do um that you haven't done it yet
2: you mean my, my actual like miniatures? Things. Yes. I feel like this requires backstory. So I, I used to work as a miniaturist. Like it was like my side hobby that turned into like a side gig when I was in college and grad school. I would make these things in the early days of the internet, like little scale miniature foods for people who collect those or do dollhouses and stuff. And so I still do them just for fun um I just made a miniature typewriter which was super uh super complicated and I'm not sure I'm gonna make one again but it was really fun (laughs) um there's a lot of keys on the typewriter. (laughs) um so that that was like a long time thing I'd wanted to do that I have never had never done before um I'm trying to think, I'd love to do something that's really modern because dollhouses are always sort of like, they tend to be like Victorian era. And those are things that I'm like, I did not, that, that is not like my family's experience of a lot of life. I would love to either do something really modern. That is like something that like, I know now, like I'd love to make a laptop that actually lit up or something. I don't, I don't know how to do that. Um, or I'd love to make something that feels like really typically Chinese American like I'd like kind of like to make a big Chinese banquet like the kind that I would go and have with like my family because I don't I haven't seen that kind of food you get a lot of like roast turkeys and and donuts which I also grew up with but I'm like I would love to see like a a real Chinese banquet with like all the dishes so maybe uh, maybe after I finish book tour I will (laughs) get some time to do that
0: That'll be your way to decompress. <laughs> uh,
2: it is. It's my way to decompress because you're like you're not thinking about anything else. You're just like I'm going to make this very, 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 very small dish of noodles, like one grain of rice at a time. Like you can't think about anything else. It's like the best stress relief.
1: Oh man, yeah. I'll be I I'll, I'll be looking forward to that because I'm like do a do a little like dumpling for me. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like you know In particular kind of
2: dumpling because like what's your favorite kind?
1: hugo
2: oh I can make a hugo (laughs) that (laughs) I can for sure make with like a tiny little shrimp on top I did a long time ago when I first started making miniatures I made a couple little dim sum dishes for my mom but she's got them and also I think I can do better now Mm. so I'm like okay I'm gonna try and do that again yeah it'd be fun to make a whole like yum cha set like all the dim sum that I like and a little
1: cart i can talk like i've been following like the tiny kitchen for a long time (laughs) (laughs) the little food so um, when i when i like learned that you do the little things i'm like oh my god we're not going to
2: talk about the book anymore we're just going to talk about
1: what cannot she not do um uh did you take anything from the set of little fires everywhere
2: oh like physically
1: take things yes
2: uh Are we being honest? I think they gave me the spanks that I was wearing because they were like, we don't reuse those. So you just take them. And I was like, you can use some spanks. That's not like the set though. That was like a costume thing. Um because they had me in this, like, I told them to put me in a dress uh for my cameo. I told them to put me in a dress that looked nothing like what I would normally wear. So they put me in this kind of like really fitted, like 90s sheath dress, and Mm. then they were like you need some shapewear and I was like okay I will put on the <laughs> shapewear um I didn't uh now I'm feeling like this was a missed opportunity
0: <laughs> who knows maybe there's something else in the future that you might be like okay I'm taking that and
2: that yeah I would just I would take like I think it would have been fun to take just like one of the small props like one of the framed family photos that's actually all the actors together that would have been fun oh,
0: that would been nice
2: next time
1: <laughs> 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 um if you don't mind telling our readers, um, you know, every story has a beginning. What was the origin story uh, for Our Missing Hearts?
2: Yeah, this story really started off as, uh, I think, a fairly traditional mother and son story. I write a lot about parents and children, because it's stuff that I think about in my life. I am now a, a mother. I'm also a daughter. I, in fact, just saw my mom recently, Um, you know, haven't seen her as much in the pandemic. And I'm And now that I'm kind of looking in both those directions, I'm thinking a lot about like what my mom gave to me, what she passed on to me, what she tried to teach me, and then all the stuff that she's experienced in her life that I'm never going to fully, fully understand. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm thinking about, you know, what is it that I want to try to pass on to my kid? And so I started right after I finished Little Fires Everywhere. And it started off as, I think, a fairly realistic mother and son story. That was always the heart of the book. Um, I was thinking about a mother who is uh, creative in some way and it was working out the details and her son just didn't understand why she was interested in this thing and even saw that kind of, you know, whatever kind of creative work she was doing as a sort of a rival for his attention. And would she ever be able to explain to him why this was a thing she needed to do? And Then um, the 2016 election happened and everything else that that brought up to the surface and, you know, (laughs) a a lot Um, and the outside world started to feel like we were living in a dystopia like this was stuff that had always been there, but people were just doing it right out in the open. Mm. And at a certain point in time, I was, you know, I was thinking about those things so much, and I was sort of asking myself so many questions about them, like what what can one person do when it feels like the whole world is on fire? What can one person do in a system that feels like it has been built to be unfair? Can you do anything about that? Um, All those questions started coming into the story, and it felt like it felt sort of dishonest to write a story with this mother and son in a world where... Trump had never happened. The far right had never come up. Black Lives Matter had never become a thing. Mm-hmm. No one was talking about any of those things. And then, of course, once the pandemic hit, it felt again sort of like, how how can I imagine that this didn't happen? It was hard for me. So the worlds of the book started to get a little bit darker because in some ways I wanted to try and explore those things on the page. I was asking myself so many questions and writing is kind of how I work out what I think about, about everything. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's the origin story. I mean, again, it started off as sort of a, 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 realistic story and then it swung down into what I thought would be a dystopia. And now as we approach the book's publication, you know, things that happened in the book are starting to happen now. I mean, they, they've always been happening. Right. But they're, they're, they're happening again. And, um, it's a weird, it's a weird feeling.
0: Yeah, that was, you know, I remember when, when 2016 happened, the infamous year, I was a high school librarian. And it was literally like, oh, wow. I got an email the next day from the English department saying that they were coming in, they were changing the book that they were working on, and that they decided that they were going to have the students read 1984. Wow, and, like one was reading 1984. And the other, I think was reading like Fahrenheit 451. So I was like, okay, all right, let me pull this stuff out, which had been, a lot of the books had been shelved from the from the library, from the previous uh, librarian who was there, because our school district had gotten to a place where they were not reading in the classrooms mm-hmm. anymore, so it was like, if it takes this to put these books in the hands, it, it means a lot, and what you've done in this novel is talked about a little bit of that importance, and I what I think what makes your books uh so good in the in way that you show the internal struggles of each character, um, in a way that it's not preachy, but yet it still informs the reader of what injustice looks like, or that this is what could happen when one chooses to ignore the big picture and how that denial can can hurt the collective. How do you measure uh the words that you've chosen to use in the story that can be absorbed and wrestled with? by those who read your book to the place where you don't sound like you're preaching to the choir, but you're you're relaying, like we need to be uh, diligent.
2: Yeah. This is such a good question because I feel like we, we need and we want a few things from the books we read, right? We want it to, we want it to touch on big issues. I do anyway. We, we want books to make us think or to engage us, with some larger question, but at the same time, we don't wanna feel like we are being spoon fed some kind of like capital L lesson, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want that kind of like, and the moral of the story is this, and you can tell that, right? I mean, you can tell that when you get picture books that are like, this is how to teach you not to be selfish. Mm -hmm. Um, You feel that, so you need there to be a realness to it and like a, a humanity to it. And like you said, I think that comes a lot from the language for me. For me, it always it always boils down to character. I mean, like language for me comes from the character. Um, all of that kind of like humanity, for lack of a better word, feeling like this is a story about real people, not like stand-ins for ideas. You know, it's not a morality play. All that for me always comes from the character too. And so to your question, I think I started trying to write it the way that a kid, like Bird, who's fairly bright, but on the whole, fairly average, the way that he would understand the world, you know, that he would understand the laws as they affected him, right? So a lot of times, as he's made to write about them in school, right? And I I think about assignments that I had to do in school, where you're kind of, you're parroting back the language you've been given. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, hopefully, you start to actually look closer at that language, and think, wait, what does that actually mean? Where you say, like, protects children from harmful environments. Mm. You're like, wait, what? What does that actually mean? Right? You start kind of reading through the cliches or the euphemisms and thinking about it. And so, my hope was that the the language of the book would never feel like I I had an agenda per se because I don't come to writing, you know, trying to impart a lesson. Like I said, I come with questions i'm trying to figure out what it is that i'm that i'm even asking and then i try to figure out sort of what i think about it and that's that's essentially what i want the book to do for a reader is not even to give them an answer but to hopefully prompt them to ask themselves questions to mm-hmm. so be like well what what would i do if i were in this situation what do i think about this you know what what role does art play or what would you know what would i be willing to do for the next generation and at what cost to myself, right? So I I hope that the book sort of starts with language that is like an actual person would use, like Bird to start off with. And then as his mindset opens up, it starts to kind of interrogate all of the, the things that he's been told and to think about them in sort of more complexity. And so one of the things I tried to do in the book was to get the shape of the book and the language of the book to echo that so that the reader could have that same kind of growth and journey.
1: Yeah. Cause I, I felt that for, especially when I was reading the book and I was like, you know, it, I think effective writers make you feel that you are one of the characters in the book. Yeah. And you know, you, I was bird at some points. I was Sadie at some points I was Margaret Marie. Like I can name all the characters. And at some point reading the book, I felt that I was it. Mm. So I think that was very effective. And when you said like, you you want readers to ask questions, me and Veronica were talking about this earlier, like while reading your book and even a little bit before that, I already had questions about like myself and like move. Cause it's my birthday next month. Oh, so, happy early birthday. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, like we always say in this show books that we read come to us in a time that we really need it. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like this, like cr- a crossroad in my life, and like, oh, what is it to be like Filipino? What is it to be yeah. Asian American? And then, like, I encounter your book, and I'm like, what? What am I willing to do? To do like, you know, m- make myself known and just be comfortable in my own skin. And also because I have a son, I'm like, what do I tell my son? Yeah. Also, you know? it's a it's a lot of questions like for me to answer, you know, a lot of stuff that I looked into your book, I'm like, oh, you know, like radical love is always sometimes the answer for a lot of things. Um, But yeah, so even if even if like we like I was going through a lot of these emotions, I think you've achieved what you wanted to do for this book, at Mm -hmm. least for me.
2: I love that you said that too. Because again, like, I feel one of the things that I love when I'm reading is to feel like I'm not alone. It's not that I have to be in total agreement with the author. I'm like, oh, you're thinking about this too. This feels important to you too. You know, you're also grappling with these same questions or problems or experiences. And it is, it is sort of like you said, you know, when you find that in the book, it's for me, it's always sort of a comforting feeling, even if it's something that I've been struggling with. And I'm so glad to hear you say that because those were the questions, the same questions I was asking myself. Right, through a lot of this, which is like, you know, I'm, I'm an Asian American, I'm a Chinese American, and I look like one, and my son is mixed. And I'm thinking, like, do I need to tell him to kind of be careful about where he's walking? Like, do, should I make him aware of this? Should I not? Right? These are questions that have been present, you know, not just for Asian Americans, but for lots of groups. Like, how how do you prepare your children for a world that's going to be hostile to them? Mm-hmm. Right. And those are questions that I, you know, have been increasingly asking myself. And, and, you know, and I hear you too. And, you know, I think many of us are thinking about those things for sure.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, you know, as we all know, violence in Asian Americans are, is not a new phenomenon. Yeah. Um, cir- like circumstances and situations like the pandemic placed a spotlight on our people. Um, We talked to the authors of Rise. Um, So, you know, they covered a lot of stuff that you mentioned in your acknowledgments, Mm -hmm. like, you know, um, the Japanese-American internment during World War II, like Vincent Chin's murder, and so much more. Um, Personally, I really appreciated those references because it allows the readers to fully educate themselves. And hopefully that will allow conversation between people. How much time and research have you invested in those materials and what would you consider one of the most important learnings you have found while reading those things?
2: Yeah, I did. I did a lot more research for this novel than I usually do for novels. And I think it was because I was I I really wanted to ground it in history and reality. Um, So Margaret Atwood has this famous saying about the handmaid's tale that often gets repeated about how she wasn't going to put anything in the book that hadn't happened somewhere at mm-hmm. some point in time. And I, I wanted to sort of take that as my guiding principle, too, um, because I was really aware that, you know, we, we, when, you, when you hear family separations right now, this euphemism, um, I think most people right now think of what's happening to migrant families at the U.S.-Mexico border but of course there's a really long history of all kinds of family separation in the united states and throughout the world and the same with so many of these issues like there's there's precedent for all of this and it just it keeps coming back cuz we don't we don't learn from it um so i wanted to i wanted to try and be as informed as i could um about not only the sort of atrocities that people do to each other and have done and continue to do but also about what it's like to live under an authoritarian regime, because I realized that was sort of what I was imagining in this book. And what are the ways that people find to hold on to hope and to fight back against the regime and to hold on to the the things that they're fighting for? So I was reading a lot of very dark stuff, honestly. This was in sort of the middle of the pandemic when like the libraries weren't quite open yet. Mm-hmm. And so I was ordering books um from my local bookstore i was trying to keep them in business and um i'd get these stacks of books in a big package that was like hannah arendt the origins of totalitarianism and like timothy snyder on tyranny and like my husband's like is this what you want to read during the pandemic (laughs) and i was like no but at the same time it felt it felt kind of important in a way to recognize that there have been dark times and that people have lived through them and to read the words of people who have thought about them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was doing a lot of reading of those. And um, there's an author's note at the end of the book, because I wanted people who who didn't know about these things yet to be able to have some resources to go to if they want to learn more about them. Um, and so there's a book called Taking Children um, by an academic named Laura Briggs. It talks about A lot of the times that children have been taken for political leverage, going back to like separations of enslaved families and then like Native American boarding schools and going to like foster care, you know, there's it's not new. Um, So I, I looked at way more than ended up in the book. But I think what I the biggest thing that I took from it, honestly, is that almost the scariest thing that you can imagine it's happened before. Mm -hmm. It's just a question of sort of being aware of it and kind of looking at it in the face and recognizing parallels, not -hmm. the same, but that there is a resonance. And that was a really powerful thing to sort of realize that, you know, we always think things are unprecedented. You know, people like to say that, but there's always a precedent. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times it's just, we didn't know about it because we weren't taught about it or because it was kind of covered up or sanitized, or because we were able to not know about it, Mm -hmm. right? Which is sort of a a pretty good definition of privilege. It was like, oh, I never had to think about that before, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm, you know, that happens. And I feel like the more we can look at those things sort of honestly and recognize again, parallels, similarities, right? Or like resonances, then I, maybe then we we can learn something from it. That was, I mean, that was a heavy thing to think about
1: yeah
0: i remember um i guess it was right before the election um nicole hannah jones was on a podcast and she was just talking about that she went down the same route that you did Mm -hmm. with you know reading more about the different ways in which a government can change and sometimes it can change like overnight
2: people
0: aren't paying attention to and how pivotal those moments are to to watch out and I know earlier in your conversation you were talking about how you know language and I think for me I, I became more about more aware about the usage of language maybe when 9-11 happened
2: mm-hmm. and
0: having you know the patriot come out and just how people said things yeah. and worded things in order to move legislation that would harm a group of people yeah um, it really goes to show like those moments where you're like oh like you're saying like people say this is unprecedented and it's just like no someone has been able to use language to dismiss all of the stuff that has happened
1: before
0: and make it almost kind of like in a way of making you forget so that they can do it again
2: exactly it I mean that's such a that's such a good point because it's like I the Patriot Act was one of the things that I was thinking about as I was writing this and I remember, you know, I was in college when 9-11 happened and looking at exactly what you said, the way that things would be very carefully phrased, Mm -hmm. often in ways that it was if you disagreed with it, you'd sound like you were, you know, you were being sympathetic to terrorists, Mm -hmm. you know, whereas, of course, there was a real concern in the way that it was being very carefully delineated to say, like, oh, well if you know why why would you argue with this unless you're against America you know there's this very clear division of line in a way that seems like it's it's couched in sort of reasonableness Mm -hmm. um one of the things that I found when I was researching was actually looking at the Patriot Act which I learned is not not just like one law which I kind of thought it was but is actually like a billion different emendations to existing laws I mean it's almost illegible they're like in, you know, section five, twenty three remove these words, replace with semicolon, these other things. So you can't see it it obfuscates what mm-hmm. it's doing. But there was a passage in there that really struck me where, after all of these changes that basically made it legal and patriotic to persecute anyone that seemed threatening, which was, of course, pretty much anybody Muslim, there was a long passage that said, The Senate wants to affirm, basically, that most Muslims are really good people and loyal Americans. And of course, we support Muslim Americans. And this is not discrimination. It is not, you know, and it struck me that they had put in a whole passage to. Kind of um, it was like a little fig leaf Mm -hmm. and. It, again, it's like you said, it's this sort of very carefully designed rhetoric and it got me thinking a lot about the ways that, you know, language can be used as a weapon mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and in the guise of of protection, right? Or in the guise of all manner of, of well-meaning things.
0: Um, your uh, character development within the book um, always feels like you have plucked these people straight from walking life and waking life (laughs) and planted them into your stories where do you draw upon uh to build these people that we find tremendously and beautifully complex
2: oh thank you that is such a wonderful thing to hear um like i said for me all of fiction always comes out of character and so when i get an idea for a character i spend a lot of time kind of getting to know them um I do a lot of writing that doesn't actually end up in the book a lot of times. So it'll be in like a a whole separate document or it'll be in a notebook if I'm feeling stuck. But stuff that doesn't, none of those words end up in the final book. But there are ways that I just start to get to know who this person is. Um, I kind of compare it to getting to know somebody if you meet them at like a party. You start off with like, what's your name? And like, okay, where do you live? Where were you from? Where'd you grow up? Uh, what do you do for a job? What do you like to watch on TV? Right. You surface stuff. And then you start from that getting a sense of, oh, that's interesting. I wouldn't have expected that. How'd you get into knitting or whatever, you know, and then you start finding out more about who they are, what they care about, who their relationships are. Oh, so you, you're not close with your parents. Like what, how come you're not close with your parents? Mm-hmm. Um. So there's a lot of those kinds of things that I do to get to know my characters. And none of them are sort of based on specific people that I know. There's almost never a direct analog. But it it comes, I think, from a long lifetime of being um, being a shy person and being an introverted person. if i'm If I'm at a real party, I am gonna be in the corner, kind of like with a drink, just kind of watching people and listening. Mm -hmm. and I feel like that that's really good training for a writer or at least it was for me because um, I feel very awkward and so I just listen a lot and in a sense I start to hear how people talk I see how they act and I start to get a sense of who people are um, because I'm observing Mm -hmm. so much more than being in the the center of the party um and so that's that's where i think you know sort of all those characters come from they come from like a long life of me kind of being on the outskirts of things and feeling a little bit apart and just watching how people do stuff um and then kind of thinking on on how those things might might play out in different scenarios
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah we when we spoke with um Tomas, Maureen, and as well, I believe it was Disha, Phil, they both said the same thing about, you know, them being just very observant people, and, you know, sometimes you're you're out there, and people say things, they have no idea that they're saying them, because they're just <laughs> talking away, Yeah, they're like, ah, oh, that's a good, that's a good sentence, let me write that down, mm-hmm. like, this is a good characteristic of that person, let me slide this into something, so yeah, that, that quiet, observant thing, it really helps when you're trying to put a story together,
1: it and most- does. And most writers I think that we talk to are very introverted people and very observant people. And it shows, it shows in the writing, you know, we, we always try to pick like a favorite character in the book. And, you know, for your books, for me, it's always hard to pick the one that I really like the most Mm -hmm. because we even like going back to like our first episode, when we were talking about little fires everywhere, we were going back and forth. (laughs) (laughs) We like the best, um. But go, going back to going back to your new book, um, we spoke to Azar Nafisi. Um, she's the author of Read Dangerously, the Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. When she talked to us, she she mentioned how women and children are the canaries in the mind that in order to take freedom from a nation, they sequester the freedom of this certain yeah. minority. You showed us in your novel, Our Missing Hearts, that it is the children that suffer the most. Um, you know being displaced and taken away Um, one of them is Sadie though she is brave aware and longing for her parents an example she's an example of those millions of children that are looking and wanting to be found how was it like to be encapsulated in Sadie and being in her mind
2: Sadie Sadie was one of my favorite characters she she just she's one of those characters that just kind of sprang onto the page and I was like, Where'd you come from? And I just kind of let her go. She came in sort of fully formed, which is one of those weird things I guess writers say. I don't know, I don't know what that says about my subconscious, but she she I I, th- I had to think a lot about her because she's in a different situation than Bert is. They've both um they've both been separated from their parents, but in really different circumstances. And in Sadie's case in particular, um, Her parents, I think, could have chosen to just look away from what was happening and they kind of chose not to right? like it wasn't a fight that was necessarily coming right to their doorstep. And to me, that was a real act of bravery that they were like, this is I could ignore this, Mm -hmm. but I will not. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, that neither of her parents is Asian and they're not directly affected. But her mother is a journalist and a black woman and her father is a Jewish man. And I imagine that both of those characters might have felt, again, resonances with what was happening. Right. Mm -hmm. And it struck me that those two people who would do that kind of thing would have a daughter who likewise would not give up. Right. And who would be brave and tough when she needed to be but at the same time would still be a child and it, it felt important for her and bird to sort of find each other because one of the things I think the book is about is finding finding people who can see where you are mm-hmm. and make you feel less alone right even if your situation is not the same to find sort of like a a found, you could call it a found family, you could call it allies, but just people who can understand sort of what you've been through on some level. And so Sadie, I mean, Sadie was in a lot of ways a joy to write because she was sort of the fighting spirit that I wanted. You know, I I was hoping everybody would kind of come around. She's still, you know, she's still been through a lot. She still feels pain. She's still sad. She's still a child, but at the same time, she also kind of gets it because she's had to. Mm-hmm. because of what she's been through and I like to think that she's sort of again that fighting spirit that everyone else eventually sort of works their way around to yeah yeah
0: she's definitely you know reminds me of people who I'm like dang I just wish I had a little bit of that resilience <laughs> to be able to just like push through because normally I'm the one that's sitting in the corner like crying like I don't know <laughs> how to do this mm-hmm. so yeah mm-hmm. like her character I think for me I resonated with the most of like just wanting the best to see what was going to happen yeah. uh with her. Um and and there are moments throughout this book where we're seeing resistance um done in in forms of bombing in unconventional ways from the earliest forms of graffiti to yarn bomb- bombing while infusing uh the poetry of Margaret um This is done in a world where protesting has been uh, banned in order to keep control of the people. And this speaks to the power of the fluidity of resistance. What was your process of deciding what you wanted uh, the fight to not continue with fire, but through art and the written word?
2: Yeah, Um, that's a great question. Part of it was, again, honestly, a, a question that I kept asking myself. You know, I am a writer and. Throughout a lot of the Trump presidency and still now through the pandemic, I found myself sort of asking, like, what am I doing with my life? Like, if I, I should have gone and been like an immigration lawyer or like a doctor, and then there would be something really tangible that I could do where I could at least see that I was helping, even in a small way. But as somebody who's in the creative field, I was like, I get to sit in my office and play with words and I make up stories about people who don't exist. And I went through this feeling of going, I am useless. This is like, I'm like, what am I What am I doing? Like, should I quit my job and like become a labor organizer? And I would be really bad at that. Again, like I'm the one who's in the corner. So I would be terrible at it. And so part of this was me asking myself, what kind of role does art play in a time when things are falling apart? right? what can art actually have any any real impact, I guess? Mm-hmm. Um, and I you know, I want to believe yes. Um, and I think I do believe yes, because what I found, especially like in the early days of the pandemic, one of the things, that brought me like comfort or solace and made me get out of bed in the morning was music, poetry. Mm. Um, I found myself rereading like certain old poems that I had read and loved. And there was something in them that reminded me, okay, that's that's what we're moving towards. That's where we wanna go, right? And maybe this is just rationalization because I'm a writer too, but I wanna believe that art can be one of those things it won't change the world all by itself, but it might inspire us to do it. It might inspire us to, um, it it might remind us what we're trying to fight for rather than just what we're fighting against. Mm. And I also do think that sometimes art can kind of make people pay attention in a way that often we don't. Like there's a lot of things in the world that draw our attention now more than ever. And it's really easy to kind of put on your, you know, those kind of little shades up so that you can't see, you can only see what's right in front of you. Um, and I feel like art is one of those, the things that can kind of snap you out of that kind of like daily grind um, and just ask you to focus on something for a second. Mm-hmm. And even if it's just a second, that's kind of valuable. And I was thinking about some of the the real life um, kind of art protests that have happened. Um, I was thinking about during the, the height of the outrage over family separations at the border, um, this this group, Raices from Texas, um, staged basically art installations where on street corners in a few cities, they put a cage and they put a figure that was wrapped in a Mylar blanket and they played recordings of, that had been smuggled out of the real detention centers. And, You know, some people might say, well, it's just a political stunt and so on, but I think that that hit people in a way that editorials and news reports sometimes didn't, Mm. right? You need both, but sometimes I think art can come in kind of sideways and it can kind of bypass your rational things. We can be like, well, but we need to have security at the border or, oh, it's just another thing. I'm going to look away from it it's much harder to look away from something that hits you emotionally. And so a lot of that's those two things together that those questions about what can art do? And then that idea that art can maybe shake you out of a malaise and mobilize is the wrong word, but make you grapple with some kind of feeling that might move you towards action of any kind. Um, That's where that idea came from of, of these sort of non non non-traditional kinds of protests Mm. the idea that maybe what what would have to happen in this world was first just to get people to pay attention like that might be the stage that they were at right
1: I think I believe when you said that art does make a difference because I was born in the Philippines I was born there year after martial law happened in the Philippines Mm. so I was born in 87 martial law lasted for how, how however long it lasted But like you said, when art, art speaks to the heart, and it kind of triggers something in you, like it kind of triggers humanity back. So there are a lot of novels written by like writers that emulate what is happening during martial law. And I think that basically made people brave to do the first nonviolent protest in the streets. Nobody was killed, and they ousted that president. Um, So yeah, I think Art can do a lot of things and it, you know, Philippines is a small country, but they were able to do it. So, and, you know, it takes like, it almost takes like, oh, we're moving mountains to do this. But I think a lot of those strength and a lot of that heart came from, came from art, from literature and like from people that wanting to do, you know, the work without, without like violence. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it, I think it can really happen.
0: Um. I want to go back to us talking uh, about uh, when the, the Patriarch was, was formed and passed and everything. And in 2020, 2021, it marked the 20th anniversary of it. Mm-hmm. And it was the day that Congresswoman Barbara Lee stood as the only member of Congress to vote no um, on giving ultimate power to then President uh, George W. Bush uh, for authorization for military force um, three days after the bombing of the World Trade Center. Uh, So there's this section in your book uh, where we visit the origin of PAC and you make mention of one Congresswoman who had questioned where it was necessary. Was that moment inspired by Barbara Lee's vote and um, what does it mean to shine a light on those who are screaming at us to turn around in the eleventh hour um, and and face the danger that it, that is possible
2: uh, for yeah. us. I mean, I had she was one of many people I had in mind in 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 a few of the figures who kind of tap the brakes or throw up a flag and say, "Hey, I, I think this might not be right." Right? There's a few figures in there, so she was definitely one of them. I didn't think of her specifically, but I did. I did make it a woman in particular because it seemed it seemed likely to me that oh, in this world, a woman might be extra aware of the ways that power dynamics work because that's so often the case, and that that particular congresswoman might she might see something coming that other people were willing to look away from, right? Um, it's always still shocking to me to remember like that she was the only one, mm-hmm. right? And you you think back, I'm thinking about about your, your question about like, you know, the people who are like, uh, do, do you really want to do that? I feel like that's that's a whole different kind of bravery, right? To be the only one who's standing up or one of a very few. And I feel like those are the people who, when we look back with hindsight, we can see, oh, they were right and they were brave and thank God for them, right? But at the time, I imagine that they do not feel quite the same certainty, right? They might feel it for themselves, but there's a real danger for them to stand up and be that person. Um, and I feel like that's, yeah, that was one of the things that I, I really sort of asked myself, like, who, who, who will do that? Who's willing to do that in this world, right? Because there's there's a real cost to doing that, uh, a lot of the time.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, we have really enjoyed your book. Um, we wanted to ask more questions, but I feel like we would keep you here all night long. <laughs> yeah, do that. I could talk to the <laughs>
2: two of you for like another couple hours. This is <laughs> you have such good questions, and it's so fun to talk with you. But
1: yeah, and it's like you know we we read a lot of books, and we we come up with a lot of authors but you know we always say we know we know a good one when we see one Mm. um and you know I'm sure if we feel this as a reader I felt the anticipation of like book after book and I'm like it keeps like getting better do you feel that pressure for yourself sometimes or you're just like well f them I'm gonna write what I want (laughs) um
2: (laughs) I, I think both, honestly. I mean, I I do I'm always gonna write what I want because I think that the book the book won't won't be true and it won't come out right if it's not something that I'm sincerely like deeply interested in and and passionate about and wondering about, right? Mm-hmm. Um if it's something that I feel like I already have made my mind up about, a lot of times that idea is not it's not rich enough. Like there's nothing, there's nothing there for me to dig into. But at the same time, it has to feel like something that matters to me. So mm-hmm. that's the second part. But I do feel, I think not pressure, but I, I use sort of a responsibility and also kind of like a wish. I, I want to keep growing as a writer.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I also want to do right by the people who found meaning and resonance in my books. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I feel like that is a huge, that's a huge gift for any writer to feel, you know, to have a reader say, Your book meant something to me, or it opened up something for me, or it made me think about something in a new way. And I want the next book to do that too, right? Um, I want to, and I want to feel for myself like I'm still growing and I'm still exploring and I'm still pushing further. I don't want to just do the same thing over. Um, So I guess. I guess the answer is yes, but in, in a, maybe a, hopefully a positive way. I think, um, you know, if I'm going to write a book, I want it. I want it to matter certainly to me and hopefully to other people. And so that's always the goal. Um, I don't know what the next book will be yet. So <laughs> we'll, we'll see if, if I manage to do that again, but um, that's always the goal.
0: When have you had the honor and and in- in picking who you wanted to help you like edit this book and all the other ones have you had the same people on this journey with you
2: i have and that has been a huge privilege and and stroke of luck honestly um i have an amazing agent who has been with me from the beginning and i think she's also married to a writer and um she's she's raising a multiracial family and i think that these issues are not just like Oh yeah, academically or intellectually, like there are real things that she thinks about in her life, and that shows in basically everything that she does. The way that she she fights for the book, you know, to be seen in the way that that I want it to be seen. And likewise, I've had the same editor um, at the same publishing house, and they publish a lot of books that sort of have like a global focus. And I think that that does help in some ways that they are not just um, they've never tried to pigeonhole me as just an Asian American writer. And I'm really grateful for that because that that wouldn't necessarily be true. And I've worked with the same um, publicist for the past three books and she's a woman of color and that's really rare in in publicity Um, and it's rare in publishing in general. And I think that that also helped too because she understood some of my concerns about again, being pigeonholed or about being pitched in a certain way. I think they all get the book, mm-hmm. and it's such it, it's such a privilege um, to to not feel like I have to start at ground zero of like let me convince you that this story is worth telling right. and that it's interesting and that it'll appeal to people right like they're they're already on board with all that right mm-hmm. um, we'll fight about other stuff where they're like do you need this scene and I was like no but I really want to keep it right but the important stuff you know it's I couldn't I couldn't do this without them and I am really grateful like every day that I get to work with them
0: well um we're grateful for them being mm-hmm. by your side because this book and all everything else that you've written has been truly uh wonderful to read it has moved us um And we can't wait for other people to join us in talking about this book. Um, Before we go, we like to ask a question to all of our guests who come on the show. Uh, We want to know what are your top five favorite books of all time. We know that it is a daunting question. And if it is too, too much, we would like to know what are the top five books that you are most excited about right now that you want people to know.
2: Oh, gosh. Okay. I'm going to take a pass on the first one because I'm going to, I'll be like, well, the top five, except that there's like a 20-way tie for first and then like a 15-way tie for second and then like a (laughs) 20-way tie for the So like, yeah, it's really like more like the top hundred. But books that I'm excited about right now, I feel like there have been a bunch. Um, I've been on a good reading streak lately. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a really great book I just read called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin.
1: We have uh, heard this book from it's, authors.
2: Tilas talked about it last night. So did he? Oh, I love that Thomas did that. Um, <laughs> it's it's really great. I mean, it, it it hit a number of sweet spots for me. Um, partly because I love video games, partly because she and I are about the same age. So she's writing about the era that I was a teen a teenager in. But it was it was a book that I I hadn't there's not a lot of books about friendships Mm. that last over a period of time and how they wax and they wane Mm. and then beyond that it's also about art and how people use art in this case video games to kind of make sense of their lives make meaning out of their lives um it's a fun read but it's also like really emotional I mentioned to my husband, like, oh, I've got this book that I just read. It's really great. And then he took it and he like didn't speak to me for a week because he was just sitting there reading the book. I was like, do you want to like go do something? He's like, no, I'm reading the book. And you to talking for like, two days. Um, so that's one I wholeheartedly recommend. One that um, it's not coming out yet. Um, I think it's coming out this fall is called Sweet, Soft, Plenty Rhythm by a woman named Laura Worrell. Um it is about, I was like, how do I tell you? It's about everything. Um, it focuses on a, a jazz musician and um, he, he's, he doesn't make the greatest choices in his life, but it actually starts to fo- to tell his story through the lives of the women that he's, are in his life. So his ex, his daughter, uh, various women that he's, you know, had affairs with and left, but also women who I think see him for who he is. And um, it was just an amazing portrait of a group of women who are figuring out i'm trying to say this in a way that doesn't sound mean to the main character because you do come to love him in the end Mm -hmm. but it it was it was a story that i hadn't seen told in that way before and the writing is gorgeous and it was just immersive and i just kind of fell into it for like three days and like didn't come up for air Mm
1: -hmm. um
2: i got to go faster or your podcast will be like two hours long. Oh,
1: oh no, um, you, you can
2: go on. <laughs> this is you, you asked a dangerous question where you're like, what books do you recommend? <laughs> um, there's a really fantastic book I'm reading that isn't coming out until I think April, but I'm going to drop a hint here so people can like, I'm sure it's available for pre-order or something called Mott Street um, by Ava Chin, uh, who is a Chinese-American writer, and it's a memoir and history where she's looking, she starts investigating her family history. Um, both sides of her family lived in the same tenement house in Chinatown in New York on Mott Street. But as she starts to unravel just sort of her family's history, it starts to become a whole history of the Chinese Exclusion Act and about how Chinese Americans and Chinese immigrants have been treated in the country. And it's it's beautifully done. It's really personal but it's also it feels like part of the american story that hasn't gotten told very much mm-hmm. so i'm really psyched for this book to come out in april um you said only five right um, <laughs> you can add extra if you want you so can add extra. There's a five b i know five five and a half 20 way tie for number five um <laughs> There's a really wonderful writer named Dolan Perkins Valdez um, who's written a couple of great books and her most recent one came out just a couple months ago called, called Take My Hand, mm. um, which is about a black nurse in the South and she's kind of going around doing healthcare and she finds out that two of her young patients who are, are adolescent black girls, poor adolescent black girls have been sterilized without their consent. Mm. And she gets involved in trying to get justice for them, like how, how this could happen. And this is based on a historical example, but she does such an amazing job of telling the story and of looking at I think the ways that people sometimes think they know what's best for other people. And then realize that, you know, you you can't make other people's choices for them. She's an amazing writer. Um and this is where I'm like, what do I pick for my last one? What do I what do I pick for my last one? Um <laughs> I can't it's too hard I have to stop (laughs) it's like it's like four I can do four and then I all the other ones are like me no me no um all right I'll say I'll say a great one um there's a book called An Immense World, and this is totally different from the others because I think all the other ones are are um, sort of more literary fiction in one memoir. Um, there's a book called Immense World by Ed Yong, who is a writer at The Atlantic. Um, he's a science writer, and he's been writing. A, he won a Pulitzer, actually, for his coverage of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But um, it's about animals and animal consciousness and how they see the world and how animals think. And he's such a great writer and he's so personable and he just explains the most complicated concepts in ways that are so accessible, even if you are not a science person. And now I'm like every animal I look at, I'm like thinking about like, how are you you seeing me? How are you like, it's really changed the way that I see the world in a a good way.
0: I had Uh, a conversation with Denny today, they have a cat. And I was just like, I wonder what she's thinking. And when I said that, she turned her head and looked at me. And I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. I wonder. Maybe she's thinking about me asking that She,
2: she is. I don't think it's a dumbass question at all. Because I feel like, I mean, she's thinking something, right? But she's also, her whole way of understanding the world must be so different from ours, right? And I, I don't know. I think this is fascinating. Um, I guess partly because I think about with other people, I'm always like, what are you thinking about? How do you see the world? You see the world in a really different way than I do. And then you take that a couple steps farther and you look at a cat or you look at like a bird, right? And you see them doing things that feel familiar, but maybe aren't. And I just, I think this is amazing. So there, okay, there's the fifth
1: recommendation. I think that's a solid list. Yes, (laughs) I need to be like on the lookout for every one of them. Yes, yes. Um, Thank you so much, Celeste, for being here. we wish we can keep you and all your words in a bottle. So every time I come back to this book, I'm like, let me, let me add the list in my bottle.
2: <laughs> I would, I would be in that bottle. Well, I thank you so much for having me on. This is really an honor. I love what you're doing with the podcast and it, it really was a joy to get to talk to you.
0: Thank you. Uh, thank you 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 granted our wish um, yep. and this is this is we can we can finish now we don't have to do any more episodes after this after so. this we retire. <laughs> no, no no no
2: you have to keep doing more episodes though like i'm sorry were you were you getting tired you have to keep going
1: <laughs> thank you for writing with so much finesse with so much like heart in this book you know, like we like you said, if you're not interested in it, if it doesn't really mean anything to you, it won't translate into the page. I felt all of your three books. I'm so happy that I got to read your third book earlier. It, like this is such a fangirl moment. So thank you. Um, I love all your books. I love the show. You know, <laughs> Um, we wish you much success and
0: everything that you do from your writing to your miniatures to your children to whatever it is that you <laughs> want to do uh in the future um thank you again and you you have a, a good night and you take care of yourself okay thank
2: you so much and the same back to both of you i, I love it keep on doing what you're doing
1: so Thank all you. right
0: see you on the internet
1: friends. Right. take care bye, bye.
0: We hope you enjoyed our show.
1: Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Vulgar Geniuses. Our theme
0: song that you're nodding your head along to was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Dammit. That's S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T.
1: Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast. See you soon. Deuces.